Good morning, church. The Bible reading today is taken from Exodus chapter 4, verse 19 to 23, Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 to 21, and chapter 7, verse 8 to 13. We've been following God's plan to rescue His people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. And this week, we come to the moment when God's chosen spokesman, Moses, confronts Pharaoh across three different short readings, we are going to witness both Pharaoh's stubborn refusal and God's determination to bless his people and maintain his promises to Abraham. We'll start with Exodus chapter 4 verse 19 to 23. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. The second reading is from Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 to 21. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slaves, slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work you require, required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met the quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelites' overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, Make bricks! Your servants are being beaten, 
but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Exodus chapter 7 verse 8 to 13. That can be found in page 86. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Thanks, Cecilia. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, as we come to your word and this confronting passage, we pray that you would remind us of not just your power, but of your grace and your mercy. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, can I ask you please to keep your Bibles open and turn back to Exodus chapter 4. Um, Exodus chapter 4, which you'll find on page 82. Uh, and also please make sure you've got one of these handouts open in front of you. As usual, there's a pretty detailed outline of what I'm going to speak about. Uh, there's a couple of other passages there that you'll need to have in front of you. So if you have that there, that would be terrific. Well, the story so far... Um, in episode one, we saw that the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, but uh, because we belong to a bigger and better story, uh, we know that God has not forgotten his promises to Abraham. And so last week, episode two, uh, God sends Moses to rescue them from Pharaoh, even though Moses is far from enthusiastic or impressive. Uh, the battle lines have been drawn uh, for this epic confrontation. It's going to come in two parts. Uh, this week, we'll see the initial skirmish and the first nine plagues. Next week, the last judgment and the Passover. Uh, today, we're basically covering Exodus 4 through 10. That's nearly eight chapters worth. So we're just going to skim over and touch down at a few key points. I'll put one on your handout then, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Uh, pick it up with me in chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. This brings us up to speed. Um, Moses, uh, he killed the Egyptian slave master back in chapter 2 and fled into exile in Midian. But 40 years later, God appears to him in the not-burning bush and sends him back to rescue the Israelites. If you look at verse 20, you'll notice, verse 20, Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. He took the staff of God in his hand. Now, it's called not the staff of Moses, the staff of God, I think, to emphasize that Moses is going not in his own strength, but in God's, uh, which is just as well, to be frank, given how poorly Moses comes across. Remember, we saw this last week, God uses weak vessels 
to achieve His purposes. Well, verses 21 through 23 remind us that Moses, uh, that Pharaoh, sorry, Pharaoh is not going to willingly give up the slaves that have been the basis of Egypt's economic success. I mean, who do you think really built the pyramids? The slaves. So, the spoiler alert, here's what's going to happen, and here's how it's going to end. Pick it up with me in verse 21 of chapter 4. Verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I'll harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but... You refuse to let him go, so I'll kill your firstborn son. A couple of comments. Uh, Verse 21 establishes the basic pattern of what's going to take place. Uh, Firstly, Moses will perform signs and wonders to try to persuade Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. But second, uh, Pharaoh is going to refuse. However, finally, God will prevail. God will prevail. And we're going to return to the tricky question of where it says in verse 21 that God will harden his heart. God will harden Pharaoh's heart. We're going to come back to that later. The second thing you notice is that verses 22 and 23 use the imagery of sons. You might have noticed that. The imagery of sons. This is important because back in Exodus chapter 1, the previous Pharaoh had tried to kill all the Israelite sons, uh, although Moses managed to escape. Now... For the very first time in the whole Bible, God explicitly refers to his people Israel as my firstborn son, my firstborn son. Uh, I think he does it to highlight the special blessing of Abraham. Or put it slightly differently, why does God call Israel my firstborn son? It's to show how dear Israel is to him. You know, they say people will do anything for their children. Uh, That's the sentiment that's going on here. But here's why it's so important. When God does intervene, he's actually going to bring things full circle. Because in rescuing the Israelites, it's going to cost Pharaoh the life of his own firstborn son. And we'll see that in the Passover next week. Well, just a heads up for us. In Exodus, God doesn't just rescue Israel from slavery... God also holds Egypt to account for her cruelty. God doesn't just rescue Israel from slavery, he also holds Egypt to account for her cruelty. Which is right. It is right that he does so. And just notice here, there's no sense of Moses being out for a a kind of bloodthirsty revenge for the way in which he has been treated. Rather, Moses will just relay God's words. It's very much a confrontation that's less about Pharaoh versus Moses, and more about Pharaoh versus God. Okay, well, let's come then, point two, to the initial skirmish. Jump forward with me to chapter five. This is the second reading that Cecilia brought to us. Uh, By now, Aaron has joined Moses as his spokesperson, and they go to see Pharaoh and ask him to let the Israelites go. Now, not surprisingly, it doesn't go very well. Pharaoh refuses. In fact... Pharaoh uses the opportunity to make things worse for the slaves, if that were even possible. 
Now, I like to call this a brazen industrial relations attack on employee rights. Pharaoh accuses the slaves of laziness, uh, poor productivity, and he demands that they make the same quota of bricks, but now without being supplied even with the raw materials, like straw. As a result, it's hardly unsurprising, I think, that the Israelites are rather unimpressed with Moses and his so-called rescue plan. They turn on him, in fact. Jump with me to the end of chapter 5, verse 21. Chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, Pick it up at verse 20. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. They said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. It's actually a reminder for us of a theme that's developing in the book of Exodus. Here's the theme. Israel is as unbelieving as the Egyptians. Israel is as unbelieving as the Egyptians are. Or, as I've said there on your handout, you'll notice there under point two, it's not like Israel was any better or more deserving than the Egyptians. And in fact, Moses' own doubts resurface at this point in chapter 5, from verses 22 through chapter 6. We're going to skip over it for the sake of time, but it's just reminiscent of how he reacted when God first called him in the not burning bush. Remember we saw that last week? All those ways in which Moses tried to say no to God. It's important for us to realize that Moses here is not portrayed in a particularly positive light. In fact, if you come with me back to the start of chapter 5, the start of chapter 5 highlights Moses' ongoing flaws and failings. So what I want to do is show you how what Moses says to Pharaoh is not what God told him to say. What Moses says to Pharaoh is not what God told him to say. If you look on your outline, you'll see that I've printed what God told him to say back in chapter 3, and then what Moses actually says in chapter 5. And I'm going to read out both passages, and we're going to play a game. The game is called Spot the Difference. Okay? And to make it easy, I've put it in bold for you. Okay? This is not a very hard game. So here's what God told Moses to do back in chapter 3, the not burning bush. Verse 18. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. That's what Moses was meant to do. Here's what he actually does. Chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who's this Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, I will not let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Okay, you see some of the differences? Firstly, Moses was meant to take all the elders with him to see Pharaoh. I presume, actually, it's because it would demonstrate solidarity amongst all the Israelites. And don't forget, Moses has been in exile for 40 years and only just returned. But instead... Only he and Aaron go. Now, why? We're not told. My guess is it's either because Moses thought, this will be easy, I don't need anyone else there, or because Moses thought this will be very hard, and if Pharaoh says no, it will be less embarrassing if there aren't other people around. 
Second difference. In chapter 3, God told Moses to ask for a three-day leave pass. But did you notice that when in chapter 5, Moses actually talks to Pharaoh, there's no mention of it only being three days. Simply, verse 1, let my people go. No wonder, I think, Pharaoh rejected such a high opening demand from Moses. And the third difference, this one's pretty obvious, Moses was never told that, chapter 5, verse 3, God may strike us with plagues or the sword. It's as if Moses feels that he needs to add a little bit of his own embellishment to make the case a bit more persuasive so that Pharaoh might agree. Well, let me just talk for a moment about application. One of the things I think we take from this passage is that when we speak God's words, when we speak God's words as his representatives, when we hold out the word of life to people, we neither add nor subtract from the commission. We neither add nor subtract from the commission. I say that not to make us nervous or afraid that, you know, we might stuff up and say the wrong thing. Rather, it's meant to put our mind at ease. Because all we have to do as his ambassadors is stick to his plan. It's not up to us to have to work this out for ourselves. Well, what happens next? At this point, we're going to skip forward to chapter 7. Get you to turn over in your Bibles to chapter 7. This is the third reading that Cecilia brought to us. And we come to the staff into a snake sign. The staff into a snake sign. Now remember the background to this. Uh, God has given Moses the power to perform signs and wonders to persuade Pharaoh to listen. Uh, the first of which was the ability for his staff to be turned into a snake. Which, of course, Aaron does. Although, you'll remember this third reading, at this point, it's sort of got a bit of a feeling of a reality TV show because the Egyptian wise men do exactly the same thing. Although, the fact that Aaron's rather lazily swallows theirs, I think, is meant to be a hint to Pharaoh. But he's not paying attention. Instead, we're told, verse 13 of chapter 7, it's printed there on your handout, Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. As I said, we're going to come back to this idea of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Before I do, let me just make this comment. This episode tells us that signs and wonders are not unique to Christianity. Signs and wonders are not unique to Christianity. It's also telling us that signs and wonders often aren't enough to soften someone's heart. Signs and wonders often aren't enough to soften someone's heart. You know, it's when people say, if only God showed me a sign, I'd believe. Like we saw last week, if only God appeared to me, I'd believe. Sometimes people do, don't get me wrong. But all too often, it makes no difference. Because if someone is determined not to believe, they can explain anything away. Well, brings us then, point four, to the first nine plagues. The first nine plagues. Uh, we've arrived at God's response to Pharaoh's defiance, his refusal to let God's people go. Now, I'm not going to read out all nine plagues uh, because, well, firstly, the pattern is basically the same each time. I'm going to explain it. But also, to be honest, I don't really want to dwell on them. 
Now, I hope actually that you had a chance to look at the video that I sent around on this week's weekly update. If you don't know what I'm talking about, firstly, it means that we're not sending you updates, so give us your email address. Secondly, you don't read my emails, which is very hurtful. Um, <laughs> but uh, go and have a look. There's a short video clip of a dramatization of the plagues. Um, from the outset, I want to say I don't relish talking about God's judgment. I don't relish talking about God's judgment because it's truly awful trying to imagine the horror. And yet it tells us something not just about humanity, but it tells us something about God. So it's too important to ignore. Having said that, I'm aware that this part is going to be hard to hear. I tried to work out how I could soften the tone. I did um, contemplate, uh, in light of one of the plagues, of giving everyone a chocolate frog. Uh, I was going to do it, except I'll give you, tell you about this. The youth pastor found out I was going to do it, and he proposed that we throw them off the balcony at you to simulate the plagues coming down. So, <laughs> thank you. No chocolate frogs for you lot. Let me try and run through each of them very briefly before I offer a couple of theological reflections and application at the end. They're printed there on your handout for you to follow along. Firstly, blood in the Nile. Blood in the Nile. Moses takes that staff of God and he strikes the Nile and it turns to blood. I'm just trying to imagine what that would be like. The smell, the fact that there's now no drinking water, everything in the, in the Nile dies. Now, without being facetious, you think the Torrens is bad. This is what happens. The thing is, Pharaoh's officials can do exactly the same thing. So we're told, verse 22, it's printed on your handout, Pharaoh's heart became hard. Pharaoh's heart became hard. So the next plague comes. This is of frogs, chapter 7 through chapter 8. This is an overwhelming pestilence, frogs everywhere. But again, Pharaoh's officials can do exactly the same. And yet when Pharaoh begs for mercy and the frogs die, I mean, just imagine the smell now. The frogs die. Pharaoh starts a habit that he cannot break. He changes his mind. And we're told, verse 15, he hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. Well, thirdly, we come to gnats. Gnats. Uh, this time, it turns out, Pharaoh's advisors can't repeat the sign. And so, come with me, chapter 8, verse 19. Chapter 8, verse 19. The magician said to Pharaoh, chapter 8, verse 19, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. His own advisors realise that something's going on, but Moses won't, uh, Pharaoh won't listen because, verse 19, Pharaoh's heart was hard. Which gives way to the fourth judgment. Flies. Flies. Now, you and I, we get a brief glimpse of the awful experience of flies in the heat of an Adelaide summer. But look at this. This is the next level. Verse 24 of chapter 8. Verse 24 of chapter 8. The Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. The land was ruined by the flies. They are everywhere. Except where the Israelites live, except where the Israelites live. Isn't that interesting? It is clear that God distinguishes his people from Pharaoh's people. 
And Pharaoh appears to relent, but again, he changes his mind afterwards because verse 32, there on your handout, Pharaoh hardened his heart. So then we get to the plague of livestock, number five. All the livestock in the land die. Can you imagine the disastrous consequences for the economy? Interestingly, none of the Israelite livestock dies. But still, Pharaoh won't let them go. Chapter 9, verse 7, his heart was unyielding. So, number six, boils, skin diseases, truly horrific. Again, it's the Egyptians, not the Israelites. But again, Moses won't, uh, Pharaoh won't let them go. Verse 12, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So, number seven, hail, hail, hailstorm, the worst storm ever imaginable. Uh, again, the Israelites are spared. Uh, it's pretty hard to miss the pattern, isn't it? God spares his people. This time, we're actually told that some of Pharaoh's officials heed the warning. Come with me to chapter 9, verse 20. Chapter 9, verse 20. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Um, some of Pharaoh's officials have worked out what's going on. And they take preventative action, but Pharaoh won't. When the storm comes, we're told, turn over the page, verse 25, we're told it strips every tree. It strips every tree. The flax and the barley, they are destroyed. And Pharaoh appears to relent, but again, he changes his mind. Verse 34, he and his officials harden their hearts. Verse 35, Pharaoh's heart was hard. So number eight, locusts. This time, Pharaoh's officials actually try to talk him down. Comes me to chapter 10, verse 7. Chapter 10, verse 7, page 91. Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go, so that they may worship the Lord their God. Don't you yet realize that Egypt is ruined? His own officials are trying to talk him off the ledge. But he stubbornly refuses. So we're told that locusts devour everything that the hail hadn't got, which wasn't much. We're told, verse 15, nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Again, it's a very, very pale imitation. But I think of when you fly into Adelaide at the end of summer, and you look down, it's just brown everywhere. The whole of Egypt has been ruined. Uh, Pharaoh appears, appears to relent, but after it stops, once again, he changes his mind. Verse 20, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so the ninth plague, darkness in chapter 10, for three whole days, we're told that the Israelites cannot see anyone else or move around. Can you begin to imagine how terrifying that would be? Although, not for the Israelites, they still had light. And yet, Pharaoh won't let them go, so verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which only leaves the tenth plague, the final plague, it is the worst of all. It is the death of the firstborn son in Egypt, every firstborn son. We'll come to that next week. All right. Turn to the right-hand side of your leaflet. 
Let me make a couple of comments, uh, a couple of theological reflections, and then make a few suggestions about application. Firstly, some theological reflections. I've tried to frame these in the, in the shape of some frequently asked questions. Firstly, did Pharaoh really have a choice? Did Pharaoh really have a choice? Because remember how it all began? God said he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Well, it's important to notice that there's three different ways that Pharaoh's actions have been described. Uh, have a look at chapter 9, verse 34, which I've printed on your handout. Chapter 9, verse 34, When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said to, through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials. Three different ways that Pharaoh's actions are described. Sometimes he hardens his heart. Sometimes his heart is hard. Sometimes God hardens his heart. What do we make of it all? Well, uh, the way to make sense of this, I think, is for you to have a look at the next quote that's on your handout. This is taken from an excellent book by a fellow called Don Carson called How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil. What he's trying to do here is show how the Bible holds these different ideas together about God being sovereign and you and I still being responsible for our choices. Follow along with me. The Bible teaches that both of the following propositions are true. God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimised or mitigated. Two, human beings are morally responsible creatures. They significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions and so forth, and they're rightly held accountable for such actions, but this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent. The view that both these propositions are true is called compatibilism. Now, just consider the alternative for a moment. In asking, did Pharaoh really have a choice? Well, I suppose God could have forced Pharaoh to comply, and that would have spared the Egyptians the judgment that they faced but it would have removed his accountability. What I'm suggesting is that the Bible insists, although it never fully explains exactly how, both that God is sovereign and that we are responsible. The Bible insists, you and I, we are not puppets on a string. We are not actors reading our pre-written lines. The best example, of course, is seen not in Exodus, is actually seen in the cross. You see, Jesus' death, it cannot have been a surprise to God. He is sovereign. His will is being done as Christ dies. At the same time, Herod and Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, all of us, we must be responsible for us to be guilty, for sin, guilty of sin. Otherwise, there's no need for Christ to die. Look at how Luke puts it in Acts chapter 4, there on your handout. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God is fully sovereign. His will will be done. You and I are responsible for our choices and we bear the consequences for them. 
Now, can I say that this obviously this is a big topic, that's all I'm going to say at this point, and you might want to push deeper into this. Um, if that's the case, can I draw attention to these little blue handouts that should be on the seats in front of you or on the seats on the side? It says, Deep Dive into Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility. Uh, what we're starting is um, a series of once a quarter events for people to be able to come and wrestle with hard passages of Scripture. And you'll see on the back that uh, for this first one, on this topic of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, we've asked Luke Wisely, uh, who's one of the lecturers at BCSA in the Old Testament, uh, teaches in theology as well, to come and help us to try and wrestle this out a bit. So if that's the kind of thing that you're interested in reflecting on more, I'd love to invite you to join us Thursday next week on the 24th. All the details are on the handout. Okay, second question, second reflection to take from this passage. Did the Egyptians really deserve this? Did the Egyptians really deserve to suffer in the way in which they did? I want to say that's a fair question to ask. It's a fair question to ask until you recall their callous exploitation of the Hebrews and their brutal subjugation of them as slaves over decades. They did deserve what they got. Horrific though it was. And in Exodus, Pharaoh's personal culpability is magnified by his repeated refusal to listen to God's warnings. Pharaoh's personal culpability is magnified by his repeated refusal to listen to God's warnings. Let me explain. Uh, I don't do this very often, but because this has been heavy going, I thought I'd tell you a joke. Lighten the mood a bit. Here's how the joke goes. Man's trapped in a flood. As the waters rise, he climbs onto the roof to await for rescue. After a while, a rowboat comes by and someone shouts out, jump in, but he says, don't worry, God will save me. A little bit later, a speedboat comes by and someone calls out, get in. But again, he says, don't worry, God will save me. The waters rise, finally a helicopter comes by and they shout over a loudspeaker, last chance mate, but he says, don't worry, God will save me. What happens? The man drowns, of course. When he gets to the pearly gates, he says, God, why didn't you save me? To which God says, what more did you want? I sent you two boats and a helicopter. Has God treated Pharaoh unfairly? Or hardly? The staff into a snake. Nine signs and wonders so far. Ten warnings. How much more patience and grace could God have shown? Actually, you know, I think the nine plagues should be called the nine warnings. Because at any point, Pharaoh could have made it stop. And I think to myself, how many more warnings should God be required to give? I ask myself... How many times am I willing to give someone a second chance, let alone a third or a fourth, before I say, enough's enough? So to my third and final question then, are there any signs of God's grace? Are there any signs of God's grace? Of course, I've put this question rhetorically to make my point. The answer is, Yes, there are. You saw it in the plagues themselves along the way. You saw it in the way in which some of the Egyptians, unlike Pharaoh, some of the Egyptians, they saw the writing on the wall. 
and they were spared. But you see it most of all in the fact that as this judgment falls on Egypt, God's people are spared. Even though it's not like Israel was any better or more deserving than Egypt. Well, point five then, so what for us? So what for us? Two things. Firstly, our choices are real, so make them joyfully. Our choices are real, so make them joyfully. In God's world, the choices that we have before us, they are not illusory. You and I, we are not puppets on a string. We are not actors on a stage. We have real choices. At the same time, how wonderfully reassuring to know that God's will will be done and his kingdom will come and his name will be hallowed throughout all the earth. It's the reason I take it as we think about the students in our midst as they come up to Jesus' week in this week ahead. It's the reason why they can have courage to wear that Barbie pink jumper. I mean, would you do it? Probably not. Do it because it's God who changes hearts. And so my second comment, our choices are real, so I made them joyfully. My second comment, it's not too late yet. It's not too late yet. I want to say particularly to people who are amongst us this morning, guests, visitors, who are still trying to work out who Jesus is and who God is, how delighted we are you are to have you with us. I want to say to you, it's not too late yet to turn back to God. Look what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. It's printed there on your handout. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, I take it this is the reason why every year the students at ES have a Jesus week. Because God wants everyone to be saved, even you. Can I say to you, if you're still trying to work out who Jesus is, you'll see there's a reference at the bottom of your hand out there to something called Explore. I'd love to invite you to join us at it. Explore is a short four-week course that we run for anyone who's trying to work out who Jesus is to start to read the Bible and see what it has to say. If you come along, you can ask any question or just listen to what others have to say. It's a great way for you to try and work out a little more, is this God actually someone who you could come to respect? Uh, I want to say uh, the next course is starting in a couple of weeks. There's already, I think I was told yesterday, there's 16 people have signed up for it. It'll be a great course. Perhaps you might consider joining us at it. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the way in which you have shown your power in such extraordinary ways. You have raised your son from the dead to everlasting life. And he is the first fruit of a harvest to come. So we pray, uh, give us courage and strength this week to do the good works you prepared in advance for us to do, that we might bring glory to Jesus. Amen.